We're going to start from uh, verse 17 of uh, Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God. And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Thanks very much. Morning, everybody. Really good to see you. Uh, it's really good to be down here in Adelaide with you guys. I came two years ago and discovered like-minded friends here, and it's really good to be back with you, and indeed to hear of the growth of the gospel in this part of the world. Uh, I, I know that uh, many of you feel that not much is happening but uh, the direction is uh, wonderful to hear about, and uh, uh, it's uh, really great to hear all that God is doing amongst you, and great to see uh, uh, Paul and Sue again, so uh, nice to be with them. Um, what I want to do with you, uh, if I may, is to begin uh, under the title of growing, that is to how we grow churches, then we'll look at how we multiply churches in planting, uh, and then we'll look at how we lead churches, uh, how we lead them. So those are the three uh, titles for today, and that's why the uh, the day is called Growing, Planting, Leading. And uh, it's great uh, to be here uh, with a Geneva Push event. Uh, I've been great friends with Al Stewart 
uh, for many years, you know, is involved uh, with Geneva uh, in Sydney, and great to see uh, uh, him so fulfilled in this uh, plant, church planting ministry. Um, I, I think it's important to, to start with the Bible rather than with practice. Uh, some of the church planting uh, uh, books and teaching and so on seem to me to start with the, at the wrong end. They start with what's happening on the ground and then try and find Bible reasons for them. Hi, Mark. I see you. Uh, and then try and find Bible reasons for them. And I think we want to start the other way around. We start with what the Bible says and the principles that God gives us for our ministry uh, and then tr- try and work out how to do that on the ground in the context in which we live. So uh, that's why we're starting with the Bible and here in Acts chapter 20. Um, and I want to start with Acts chapter 20. Not, uh, it's not a random choice. Uh, it's not that uh, I just like this passage. Uh, what's extraordinary about Acts 20 is that in the previous chapters, as part of the whole theme of Acts, you know, 1-8, second volume of Luke's work, um, that uh, recording where Jesus says that you'll be my disciples in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and the whole program that empowered by the spirit of the risen Jesus Christ, uh, the apostles are enabled, First Peter then Paul, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, as, and we're to be uh, part of that mission. Um, what's been happening, of course, in the previous chapters, uh, Paul has been planting churches. He's been planting churches in Thessalonica, and then Athens, and then Corinth, and Ephesus. And then here in chapter 20, he sits down with the leaders of, of uh, the Ephesus church and says, now this is what I've been doing. I know it's a very simple thing, but that's why this is so important. He's been planting churches, and then he tells us how he's done it. So it's not a random thing for us, if we're interested in church growth and planting churches, to come here to Acts chapter 20 and see how he did it. Uh, you'll find there's uh, an outline in the, in the program, and I just want to take you uh, through the Bible text. Um, I find it um, so thrilling as a passage, and that's all I want you to do, is just walk through the text with you and show you uh, what it means. So let's begin at uh, verse 17. Uh, the context of this uh, extraordinary ministry training day is set for us in verse 17. Uh, from Miletus, so if you remember Paul is returning uh, at the end of his th- third missionary journey, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. Uh, he wants, he's in a hurry, he wants to get to Jerusalem with a great gift of money from the Gentile churches for the Christian brothers and sisters in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, he doesn't want to get delayed, but he can't sail past the west coast of Turkey, uh, as it now is. He can't sail past Ephesus, where he was, uh, which, where he'd planted a church, had been senior pastor for, for three years. Um, he can't just ignore the people that he'd grown to love so much, uh, and such an important church uh, in the whole region. Um, so he stops off in the port of Miletus, Presumably, he didn't travel the 30 miles into to Ephesus because, if you remember, he'd been thrown out of Ephesus uh, with a riot. You read that in the previous chapter. And so either he would be delayed by the Christian brothers who so keen to, keen to see him, um, or indeed by the police, uh, you know, the authorities. Uh, did you hear Paul's back in town? Let's go and get him. Uh, he can't afford that. So he stays out at the port and he sends to the church uh, for the people who are most important for the future of the church. And uh, it's not the treasurers. Uh, He sends to Ephesus for the elders of the church, uh, the presbyteroi, the the senior, the team of senior men that the Apostle Paul appointed to uh, all the churches that he planted, indeed, according to Titus 1, incomplete until you've got that team of senior men running the church. So he calls for them. And at verse 18, when they arrived, so you can imagine, I don't know, they got on their donkeys and their carts or whatever the public system was then, and they arrived. And perhaps he's shacked up in some taverna, and uh, he's hired the sort of top floor or something, and uh, it's a cool breeze. And they all uh, say hello to each other and get their cups of coffee and their name tags and their course materials and all the rest of it, and they head up onto the roof. And he starts this ministry training day. Now, it only took three minutes to read. I assume that it took longer than that to give the whole day. So as is the pattern in Acts, uh, Luke is summarizing the, the, the training day. Uh, No doubt he's quoting Paul uh, in the phrases that he used. It's not everything that that Paul said in the day, but it's the key things. And uh, they're uh, given to us here. Now, uh, he says, verse 18, uh, when they arrived, he said to them, uh, so good to see you all. uh, And he says, 
You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. So what he wants to do is to talk about um, the way he'd lived, his ministry patterns when he was with them. And I want you to notice, just as we begin, that ministry is a lifestyle. It's not a performance. He doesn't say, do you remember the extraordinary meetings or do you remember the amazing talks I gave you? He says, you know the, whole, the way I lived. You know how I lived. And I do, do think it's important that uh, gospel ministry is a way of life. It's a lifestyle, a way of life, of wi- in which, of course, the teaching of the Bible is central. But it's not a divorced thing. You don't stand up on a Sunday, uh, do some Bible teaching, then go off and do something completely different. It's, it's part of a way of life that is gospel-centered. Christ loving uh, and it's something he's saying look I'm talking about how I lived the whole time I was with you it was consistent I'm not just talking about what I did on Sundays I'm not talking about the skills you need to present meetings I'm not talking about how to get brilliant musicians and buy kit and hire halls I want to talk about the fundamentals of my ministry lifestyle with you and I lived this way from the first day I came into the province of Asia I take it he's not even talking about some of the cultural adaptations he'd have made for this particular culture that he found in Western Turkey. So he's not talking about the things that vary according to the the part of the the country you're in, the part of the the, the continent, the part of the the town. Let's get back right to the really basic fundamentals that are the same in every place that the Apostle Paul went. And in the same way, they should be the, the, the ministry pattern for us, whether we live in London or in Adelaide, wherever we are, here are the fundamentals. And that's what's so exciting about this passage, because they apply to all of us everywhere if we're involved in leading a church. So here we go. How does he summarize it? Verse 19, uh, he says, I serve the Lord. Uh, In other words, you could summarize the whole thing as uh, ministry, I served. But who is the ministry for? Not I served Christ Church Ephesus uh, or um, the King's Church of the Cherubim and the Seraphim Ephesus. I serve the Lord. In other words, ministry is primarily serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, sometimes when we're challenged on uh, the ministry that we need to do, we need to remember who we work for. Uh, Sometimes the church will want us to do things that the Lord Jesus forbids. Uh, Sometimes our wives and kids will want us to do things that the Bible says we cannot do. Sometimes we will want to do things or not to do things that Jesus says we have to do. And we have to get clear that we work for the Lord Jesus Christ. I served the Lord. He says, I did so with great humility and with tears. Uh, I don't think the English uh, translation is very helpful there. You know, oh, I'm just so humble, shucks, you know. Um, I think he means with humiliation. Uh, That is, with great humiliation and tears. Um, We know from the descriptions of his ministry, uh, you read um, 1 Corinthians 11, um, you know, how... Um, humiliated he was Uh, and there are times in ministry uh, aren't there when we are humiliated Um, I think of many occasions where uh, you suffer scorn and uh, criticism and uh, you go to bed that night just feeling you know just so small because everything seems so pathetic Uh, everyone is looking at you uh, and you can you, you just know your ministry looks so ineffective and small and unimpressive because you're preaching the cross, Christ crucified and everybody else thinks it's just such a pathetic message and such a pathetic ministry and you feel humiliated by it. Uh, and with tears, uh, you will know the tears of suffering in ministry. If you follow in the footsteps of our Lord and you carry the cross following his example, you will know tears. Tears of frustration with yourself that you haven't been able to do the things that you've, you're aware of the hypocrisy of your ministry and your own sin. You're aware that other people that you've invested so much hope in, have failed. You've been reading the Bible with somebody for months and months. You thought things were so God and they've just uh, so good and they've walked away. And you, there are many tears of frustration in church uh, ministry. And he said, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, and you will find that uh, as then the organized religion of the, uh, the Jews, uh, you will find in any part of the world that organized religion Uh, will oppose gospel ministry. Uh, I think of some of the plots that we faced in our church planting. Uh, It is extraordinary. Um, 
I remember one of the church plants we opened, uh, Sir Rupert Standring opened the plant in, in Fulham, and one of the local ministers came up to him and said, I want you to know that I am dedicated to closing you down. And you'd think that a clergyman had something better to do with his life, but um, anyway, that's what he said to Rupert. Um, I think of a, um, uh, uh, when we were facing uh, a court case, I had to go through a court case because the, uh, of uh, our bishop's uh, refusals to teach what the Bible teaches on basic sexual ethics. And uh, the day after the court case, I was taken to court over it. Uh, we won the court case. Um, and the following day, a local clergyman instituted a local council investigation into the use of our office space in one of our plants in central London, and our office was removed. Um, you know, you just think, how, how did that happen? You know, uh, I'm afraid that's um, quite normal, and, uh, but painful uh, when it happens. It says, verse 20, you know. He keeps saying, you know. And I think one of the important things about the words you know are is clearly he shared his ministry lifestyle with the elders. It's one of these things where um, if you want people to understand gospel ministry, you have to share your life with them. You have to open your home to them. You can't have this kind of professional thing where, you know, if you're the church leader, you know, you turn up on a Sunday and then you disappear and nobody knows how you live the rest of the week. Uh, so I remember at uh, Dundonald Church when I first arrived and we first had apprentices, uh, regularly on a Saturday evening... There'd be a knock on the door, and I'd open the door, and there'd be Perks and Grimesy. And uh, Perks was uh, our uh, ministry trainee, our apprentice. And uh, they'd come in and say, oh, are you watching telly? And you'd say, well, we are actually, yeah, you know. Great, uh, you know, uh, is it the football? No, it wasn't. You're not watching the football? Yeah, we do, actually. So uh, come in. <laughs> so you'd settle down, you'd turn over to the football, and there'd be another knock on the door, and it's the pizza man. And Perks would say, oh, it's the pizza. Do you mind getting that, Richard? So, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so I go and pay the pizza man and bring the pizzas in. And, and so on. And, it's, and the apprentices became part of our family life. My first three apprentices are our godfathers to my uh, second son. And they were just part, part, you know, I don't mean they lived with us, but they spent so much time with us. And of course, what that meant was they saw how I read the Bible with the kids around the tea table. Uh, they saw that there was tension in the room because I was late. Uh, they saw that I'm not a superhero, I'm just an ordinary human being trying to serve Jesus. And they learned how to do ministry in the realities of family life. And that's what you need. You need to look at 2 Timothy 3, you know, the Apostle Paul saying, you know how I lived, how I'm all my sufferings, you know my teachings and my way of life. And then he goes, and you know the scriptures. But it's not only the scriptures, you need to see the scriptures lived out. And uh, that's what the Apostle says, you know. Verse 20, you know, I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. In fact, there are, no, there are two, you know, that I've not hesitated statements. One there in verse 20, and uh, the other in verse 27, I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So it seems to me the apostle is saying that in his teaching program, there are two parameters. One, anything that would be helpful to you. Two, the whole counsel of God. So the apostle is bearing in mind everything that the scriptures teach. He wants the people he teaches to know everything in the Bible. Uh, if, the, if, if the Bible is sufficient for because it's everything we need to know from God, it's not only sufficient, it's also all necessary. So we have an obligation to try and give people the whole of the Bible, not just select our favorite bits and just hammer those. Uh, we need to give them exposure to the whole will of God. But in terms of how you do that, you bear in mind the other end of things, uh, and, and that is uh, anything that would be helpful to you. Uh, at what stage is the congregation? And so in designing your teaching programs and so on, you need to bear in mind those two uh, parameters. And uh, I do notice, what, I've just been on the um, ministry training conferences in Sydney, and uh, I was just speaking to some of the guys and noticing that some of them are trying to fill their talks with everything they can find off the net. You know, everything that John Piper said, everything that Tim Keller said, everything Mark Driscoll said, everything that Don Carson said, that, and they're filling their talks with everything they can find. And I'm just thinking, you know, you're going to burn out trying to do this. Just give people the word of God. Just give them the scriptures, give them what the text says and means, apply it to their lives. But I want to give you confidence. I was trying to give them confidence this week, and I think we had a good time together. Um, it's the word of God that people need, but bear in mind what people need. Uh, so don't spend your life trying to summarize what the whole world is saying on the, uh, the blogosphere and fit it all into your talk. You'll go bonkers. Give people the word of God.
Um, so he says, you know, I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I take it publicly, he means uh, in the market square, in the hall of Tyrannus, uh, the places where they, he first encountered them, evangelizing them and persuading them to come, and come to his Bible studies, but also house to house, that is in the house churches. Uh, they didn't have uh, lovely old Anglican buildings like this, um, so they were meeting in their homes, house churches, uh, so both publicly and from house to house. In other words, constantly. I was teaching you constantly. And uh, that's what ministry is like, isn't it? You know, on the, uh, in the car on the way to football, you know, over coffee, on the phone, and you get together for a serious Bible study, you're looking for every opportunity to teach people the word of God. And what was the response he was looking for? Verse 21, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks, that is to, uh, to people of all backgrounds, that they must turn to God in repentance and faith and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So the response we're looking for is the response the word of God requires, which is repentance and faith. Uh, so repentance, changing your mind, faith, trusting in the Lord. And I've often said as an illustration of this, it's just a helpful visual reminder for me, repentance and faith is if I'm going this way, which leads to hell, I turn around and I go this way, which leads to heaven. And basically, in terms of where I'm turning away from sin, that's repentance, in terms of turning to Christ, and that's faith. So it's two sides of the same coin. They're not two different things. They're two sides of the same thing, turning round to go Jesus' way. Repentance from sin, faith in Christ going his way. Of course, you do that uh, fundamentally when you become a Christian. You turn your life round and you go his way. But what happens is parts of your life go back the, in the old direction. And so you're constantly, as the word of God is taught, you're constantly bringing the different areas of life under the rule of the Spirit of the Lord through his word. And so some part of your life is going back in the old direction. You drag that back, map that, you break that back. But it's not you becoming a Christian over and over and over again. It's the different parts of your life have been inconsistent with the new direction of your life. So when you're teaching the word of God, repentance and faith is the response we're always looking for. But of course, it's worth remembering, isn't it? If I go this way and I hear the word of God, have I repented? Not yet. Not yet. If I hear the word of God and I think it's true and I feel its power, have I turned round? No. If I hear the word of God, I feel its power, I know it's true and I want to turn round, have I become a Christian? No. Not until I actually turn round. In other words, metanoia, repentance, changing your mind, doesn't just mean toying with a different opinion. It means the depth of your will. It means to turn your life round to repent, to actually turn and follow Jesus. For myself, that's the problem I have with the Alpha Course. I don't think the Alpha Course talks enough about heaven and hell, the future, or repentance and faith. That's why I use Christianity Explored. I've said so to Nicky personally, but it's got too big to change. Uh, well, he thinks that. But I wish they would teach both heaven and hell, the future, because it makes sense of the cross, and repentance and faith turning round. That's the response we're looking for with our teaching ministry. Well, with that preparation in mind, he's talking about uh, the ministry of teaching for repentance and faith. He now explains what his ministry was. The heart of his ministry, teach the gospel, verses 22 to 27. Teach the gospel. Verse 22, now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, this word gospel, it's uh, central to gospel ministry, of course. Uh, just, to, just to kind of um, not assume what I don't think you can assume, uh, if you actually look at what the Bible says the gospel is, not just all the good things the Bible talks about, but what the Bible actually says the gospel is, you, you will find people, if you're at um, theological college or whatever, you know, people will say gospel is anything good. You know, anything good in the Bible, that's the gospel. That's not true. There's, there is a content to the gospel. So uh, Galatians 3 tells us the gospel begins with the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 of land people blessing, that is, of, of a place in the kingdom of God. That one day, through faith, you'll have a place in the kingdom of God. You look at Isaiah, and the gospel is, 
in Isaiah 40 and 52 and 61, uh, that the gospel is that the Lord is coming, he's coming to save, he's coming to, to liberate. So at the end of the Old Testament, there's the promise of a place in the kingdom of God through the Lord coming to save and to set free. And of course, then the Lord arrives in person in Jesus and he announces himself in Mark 1, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. I'm here to open the kingdom because the king has arrived. And uh, what are the two things the New Testament stresses about him? Firstly, who he is, the Lord. Secondly, what he's done, Savior. And if you like, the two biggest passages, it's everywhere, of course, about the two biggest who is he? Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. What is the gospel of God? Concerning his son, it's not about the father, it's not about the spirit, it's not about me, it's not about Satan or the church, it's about the son of God. And he summarizes those first few verses, you remember, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I don't think, it's not his first name, middle name, and surname. And it's not some random collection of things. Uh, those three words helpfully summarize what Paul has been saying in Romans 1, 1 to 5. Uh, if you remember, Jesus, that is the crucified Nazarene, the man, the 5 foot 10 guy. People saw him walking around. He preferred blue to green or whatever it was. Jesus, the crucified Nazarene, is Christ the Messiah, the anointed, the the promised chosen king, saviour king, the promised saviour king, our Lord, that is the risen ruler and divine judge of all. So Jesus is Christ, our king. That's who he is, and that's what the gospel declares about him. What did he do? Well, he came as king, says Mark's gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And Romans 2.16 and Revelation 14, he's coming back to judge. As my gospel declares, says Paul in Romans 2. So judgment is part of the gospel. So in other words, what is the gospel? It's all about Jesus. Yeah? That he'll give us a place in the kingdom. He's God come to save and liberate. Who is he? Jesus is Christ our Lord, who came as king, died for our sins, rose to rule, and will return to judge. That is the gospel. Now, of course, the New Testament then talks about the benefits of the gospel, the gospel of peace, the gospel of life, the gospel of hope, the gospel of righteousness, the gospel of grace. Summarize all those benefits of the gospel and its life in the kingdom of God. But the gospel concerns the Son, who he is and what he's done, Jesus, our Savior, our Lord and Saviour. So that's the gospel. However, in this passage, you find a couple more phrases that Paul clearly wants to emphasize to the Ephesians. So he says, firstly, in verse 25, that it's the gospel of God's grace. In other words, by this message, we experience and know the undeserved kindness, the grace of God. Just a note to you, if, if I may. A few years ago, I thought I was teaching the gospel of grace. And a very able young man who was with us, who has uh, now become the, the senior pastor at the Tron Church in uh, Glasgow, took me aside and said to me, Richard, I don't think you're preaching grace. And I thought to myself, I, I am. I teach the Bible. I teach grace. And he said, but, but in the way you teach the Bible, it doesn't sound like grace. And I was annoyed by it, but when I thought about it, actually I thought he's right. He's right. Because the way I taught even the doctrines of grace and the truth of the gospel went like this. Do you realize that Jesus came to die for you on the cross? I mean, have you really thanked him? I mean, it's so wonderful, but we don't seem to realize it. So everything I was teaching that was good, I turned into an accusation. It was, have you discovered yet how wonderful it is that Jesus died for you? If you haven't, then spend some time thinking about it. I was turning all the good things into challenge. And I need to stop and say, it is just wonderful that God has given his son to die for us on the cross, isn't it? And not saying, do you rejoice in that? And have you realized yet? And are you living your life by all this marvelous marvelous news? In other words, the way I was packaging and delivering the gospel, I was turning it into a challenge and a rebuke and a, and a, a strong message. And I needed to stop and learn again how to just enjoy, celebrate, and, and, and communicate to those I'm teaching 
What a wonderful thing it is. What a joy to be a Christian. How good is God to have given us his son. So it's not only, I just want to encourage you, be aware of how you teach, whether you undermine the content of the goodness of the gospel. It's the gospel of God's grace. It's not of us improving. It's, of, it's not about what God does in us. It's about what God has done in Christ, God's grace. Notice also it's about the kingdom of God. Um, verse 25, uh, I've gone about preaching the kingdom. So um, presumably he, he, he preached uh, the rule of Jesus Christ in the context of the whole progressive theme of the kingdom of God in the Bible. And he preached the whole will of God, verse 27, that is the whole of the scriptures. It's not that all of the Bible is the gospel. It isn't. Lots of the Bible is about Satan. Lots of the Bible is about me and you. Lots of the Bible is about the church. It's not the whole Bible is the gospel, but the whole Bible is related to the gospel. It's all background and, and it's all related to understanding the gospel. If you can't see the connection between any part of the Bible and the gospel, we haven't yet understood it. Let me just make a little comment about teaching that gospel, though. Um, I don't think that what the apostle is saying is that he turned up at every uh, house group and every talk in, in the uh, Hall of Tyrannus or whatever. He said, right, I want to run you through the whole Bible's teaching on the grace of God. And I want to teach you about um, predestination. I want to teach you about providence. I want to teach you about um, uh, the, you know, the preservation, the perseverance of the saints and so on. And I don't think when he talked about the kingdom of God, he said, I want to uh, teach you about the history of Israel from the beginning to the end. And uh, when I teach you the whole counsel of God, I'm just going to summarize uh, all the books of the Bible. Um, I don't think he did that uh, and then stopped. The reason I'm saying this is that you will be aware that in teaching ordinary people, especially people with no background in Christianity, uh, we need to be simple and we need to explain the relevance of what we're talking about to the lives that they're living. And I think that sometimes if we just teach the doctrine and then find people can't understand what its relevance is, sometimes we leave the Bible behind and move on to a kind of therapeutic counselling thing where we're really trying to deal with people's problems. And I want to suggest to you that actually Paul would have taught these doctrines but how they applied to ordinary people's lives. In other words, the necessary implications of these great truths in their ordinary lives in Ephesus. So let me put it the other way around. Would you imagine that uh, many people in your congregations have problems with guilt uh, for the, the things they've been involved with in, the, in, the, in their lives? The sins, the mistakes, the things they've done wrong, uh, the addictions uh, that they've suffered from. It, it, quite common in the problem in people's lives, isn't it? There are issues of guilt, in, inadequacy, feeling unloved, uh, and so on. Would you recognize those problems in ordinary people's lives? Well, how about the issues of um, disappointment with life? Uh, life has not turned out how you hoped it would be. Uh, my job is, not as, is, is disappointing. My marriage is disappointing. Uh, my children are disappointing. Um, I am disappointed. You know, life is disappointing. And I'm struggling with my disappointments in life. You know, so much is promised in the media and it hasn't turned out that way. And I'm struggling with the sheer sense of, of frustration and disappointment. Would you reckon that people live with those issues on the ground? Or how about issues of confusion? I don't know what to do. I'm struggling to run my life. I'm struggling to know how to look after my, my children. Teenagers are... A, are um, a joy, uh, but uh, I'm finding it really confusing to know what to do. I, I don't know how to enter this stage of my life as we retire. I don't know. I don't know. We're having our first baby. I have no idea how to cope with the exhaust. You know, confusion. Should I do this or that? Should I move here or there? Confusion. Do you reckon those those, those are issues on the ground? So issues of guilt and inadequacy. Uh, issues of uh, disappointment with life. Issues of of um, confusion, but what I've deliberately done is just listed some of the applications of the doctrines that we were just talking about. In other words, guilt and inadequacy is to be met with the doctrines of grace, of what God has done in Christ, that I am precious to him, I am loved and accepted by him. Uh, issues of um, disappointment are to do with the chronology of the kingdom. The kingdom is not yet here. We pray, thy kingdom come. 
That's why life is disappointing, because the king has not yet come back. And so much of our disappointments are about understanding the time in which we live and the chronology of the kingdom. It's not just about the history of the kings in Israel. It's about understanding that the king has come, but he's gone and he's coming back. There are issues about that which address my disappointment with life and the problems and the difficulties of living in this world and decision-making and confusion. So much to do with understanding the wisdom literature and the whole counsel of God and the ways that God has given us to make sensible decisions in life. What I'm trying to show you is that the doctrines of the gospel, grace, the kingdom, the whole counsel of God, are not just technical doctrines that belong in the Bible. They are the truths of the gospel to be lived. They have, they have implications for the way we live. And we have a responsibility to draw those out, or if we're not careful, we'll end up ditching them, because people can't live by them, and then we'll end up in therapeutic counseling that does nobody any good. So what I'm saying is teach the gospel, making the necessary implications into people's ordinary lives here in Adelaide or wherever it is you work. But as he does that, notice what he says about his experience. Verse 22. The only thing I know for sure, prison and hardships. So as he um, heads off to different towns and cities... Uh, lots of uncertainty. He doesn't know anything. I don't know where we're going to meet. I don't know how we're going to raise the money. I don't know what we're going to do. The, the one thing I do know is I'll probably be shoved in prison and smacked around a bit by somebody in the market square. That's the only thing I can be sure of. It's just encouraging, isn't it, when we're doing church planting and you're kind of thinking, it's pretty hard. There's lots of things I haven't worked out. Well, welcome to the apostolic pattern of church planting. There's all kinds of things I have no idea how they're going to work out. One thing I do know, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. So don't give up after a year because it's hard. Well, what did you think it was going to be? Of course it's hard. Uh, More than that, what is the task? Testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That is the task, verse 24. The task is not building the biggest church the country has ever seen. The task is not impressing my church planting network leaders. The task is testifying to the gospel. Do that, you're doing the job. The fruit, the the returns, the the results, they're in God's hands. Paul doesn't talk about the results. He doesn't say the task I have of planting 95 churches by next year. I mean, we can plan all those things, we can hope all those things, but they're not the task. The task is preaching the gospel. And notice that he says, verse 25 to 27, I'm innocent. The implication being, if you don't do this, you're guilty. Verse uh, 26, therefore I declare today I'm innocent of the blood of all men. What is that phrase, innocent of the blood of all men? He's referring, of course, to Ezekiel, uh, chapter 3 and verse 34, where uh, Ezekiel talks about being guilty of the blood of other people. Do you remember the, um, the accounts there? Uh, just, so let's just switch um, tone for a moment. Do you remember uh, back in Ezekiel, uh, God says to Ezekiel, I'm appointing you my watchman. So the, the idea is you've got sort of like towns in, in uh, Palestine and the people are out in the fields and they're tending their sheep and uh, uh, digging the, the, the fields or whatever and there's some enemy, you know, the army's coming over the uh, some sort of nomadic tribe or whatever, coming over the hill to raid their town and the watchman on the walls of the town, you know, blows the trumpet, you know, and everybody runs back inside, they close the doors, and they're safe from the, the threat. Well, that's the idea. And so God says to Ezekiel, I'm appointing you watchman for my people, watchman for, for Israel. And uh, the, the interesting thing here is, of course, what is the threat? Answer himself. He's the judge, he's coming in judgment. And he says, I want you to warn the people that I'm coming in judgment because this is the most reluctant judge you could ever, ever imagine. So he's coming in judgment. He says, I'm appointing you watchman. I want you to tell the people. Now he says, if you tell them and they ignore your warning, then their blood is on their own heads. But if I'm telling you about judgment and you don't tell them, then their blood is on you because you haven't told them what you know, which is that judgment is coming. And the Apostle Paul says, I can tell you, I stand here today 
knowing that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Because I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. That is, I did not leave out the bits you don't want to hear. I did not leave out judgment. I did not leave out the other things that nobody wants to talk about. Sexual ethics, the uniqueness of Christ, the idolatry of other religions. Now, I'm not saying that the apostle is saying, I, I, I told you all the, all the hard stuff on the first day I met you. I'm not saying that. Surely he's not saying that. He would have been wise about choosing his time. And, of course, I'm not saying that he used the most offensive lang- language he could possibly think of. There are ways of saying things, aren't there? We can talk about the reality of hell and the horrors of judgment in language that people can understand, especially when we talk about ourselves rather than others. You know, when you, rather than saying, you're going to hell, you're going to burn forever, it is helpful to find another way of saying that, such as, I don't know about you, but I realized I'm in serious trouble with God for the way I've treated him. I don't deserve to live with him. And I, and I just discovered that the way I'm so selfish, I'm so uh, envious, I'm so self-centered, I'm lustful, I, I'm angry, I'm bitter. And, and I just realized I'm in serious trouble with God. I can't live with him. And I understand that to be left out of God's presence is to be in a dreadful place. Everything good, taken away. And when Jesus said it's like, it's like living in a fire, I think he meant it's, it's horrendous. You don't want to go there. There are ways of saying the same thing that don't point at somebody in an offensive way. So we have to find ways of explaining the truth in language that people can understand and hear. The apostle says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. The implication to the elders is, make sure you are, and that you don't pull your punches, that is, you don't, you don't uh, be politically correct with the Bible, with the gospel. Uh, you may have heard Rico Tice uh, talking about Rico Tice, the evangelist at All Souls in London, uh, one of the authors of uh, Christianity Explored. And whenever he tells this story, he always wells up in tears. And he says, I remember that uh, some years ago, my grandmother was dying and she was not a believer in Jesus and I went to visit her in hospital and I held her hand and I talked to her and then he always gets choked up and he says, but I never told her about Jesus. And he says, I will never do that again. I resolved after that when she died that I would never let that happen, happen again. And so he became an evangelist. Now, thankfully, of course, somebody else shed blood for us to be forgiven for the blood that's upon us. But the apostle is saying to us, do not bottle out. When it comes to it, you have to explain the hard things, especially judgment. So teach the gospel. Now, the second and third sections uh, here, protect the church and give the word, I can deal with more briefly. And I think they are, they are two issues that the apostle was aware of, particular to Ephesus. The reason I think that is that when you read the letters to Ephesus, uh, the letter of the Ephesians, but also 1 Timothy in particular, the same issues emerge again. Uh, that is, issues with false teaching and with money. Uh, but I take it that these are issues that are going to be common in pl- uh, planting churches, which is why he wrote about them as an apostle for all of us to read. Uh, Paul, how long, uh, when do we want to finish? Ten minutes? Fifteen? Fifteen's fine. Everybody still with me? All right, teaching the gospel, the first thing, now protect the church, verses 28 to 31. Um, who's got an NIV Bible here? Can you stick a hand in the air? Right, all the NIV Bible readers, if you don't mind reading, and you can speak English, or well, Australian, could you read verses 28 to 31 out loud? Would that be all right? Starting together now. Keep watch. Thank you. Protect the church. Uh, Clearly he's talking here about false teachers in the church. And you will find if you plant churches, unless Jesus was wrong and Paul was an idiot, at some point you're going to face issues of false teaching. It's just normal. 
Now, he talks here about being shepherds. That's where we get the word pastoral ministry. Um, I want to remind you that pastoral ministry is not just personal ministry. Uh, You notice how sometimes we say uh, he's a a decent preacher but he's a hopeless pastor? Uh, What we mean by that is uh, he he can give a decent talk, he's just useless with people. Okay? Now, it's important to be good with people. I don't know how you can really understand and teach the Bible without being good with people. But pastoral ministry is not the word for being nice. Being personable, that's a good word. Being a nice, that's a good word. Um, it's good for Christians and for Christian leaders to be good with people, to be personable. But pastoral ministry in the Bible is always redemptive ministry. Whenever you read about God's pastoral ministry, when God describes himself in the Psalms, Psalm 95, for example, as he uh, rescued the flock from Egypt, and ca- uh, yeah, slavery in Egypt and carried them out, even Psalm 22, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... You, you, you follow the progression of the psalm, and it's uh, make, lying down um, on green pastures and water uh, through the valley of the shadow of death to the feast in the presence of God. Uh, pastoral ministry in the Bible is redemptive ministry. In other words, it's gospel ministry. Now, what is pastoral ministry? How quick are you in your... Can you get back to Ezekiel 34 pretty quickly? Ezekiel 34. where God describes his pastoral ministry. All right? So Ezekiel 34, he condemns the shepherds of Ezekiel's day. And the reason is that they only look after themselves. They're more interested in themselves than in the sheep. And so he says, verse 10, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I'm against the shepherds and hold them accountable for my flock. I'll remove them from tending the flock so the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. It will no longer be food. Verse 11. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will. So here comes his his pastoral shepherding ministry. Let's look at what it is. Verse 11. I will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I'll bring them into their own land. I will search for them. I will rescue them. I will gather them. Okay? So he's using shepherding imagery to talk about rescuing his people from exile in Babylon and bringing them home to the kingdom of God. In other words, search, rescue, gather, what do we call that? It's the ministry, surely, of evangelism. I mean... Bringing people in to the kingdom of God. Let's carry on. What will he do with them once they're in? Verse 13. I'll bring them out. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I'll tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They'll lie down in good grazing land. They'll feed in a rich pasture. Verse 15. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. Search for the lost, bring back the strays, I'll bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I'll destroy. So, what will he do with them once he's rescued them? He will feed them. He will tend or heal them. Uh, He will heal them and he will give them rest. So, in other words, feeding them the pasture that they need, healing their wounds, binding up their wounds, and giving them rest would we not say that that, those pastoral images are the teaching, the ongoing teaching ministry of the pastor? We feed the sheep so they become spiritually strong. The teaching of the word of God heals the damage of sin in their lives and they know the rest of at last being forgiven and loved by God. The teaching ministry. Moving on, 17. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I'll judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats, uh, is it enough, enough for you to feed the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture? It's not enough. Uh, so on must my flock feed. Verse 20, Therefore, see, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting, I'll save my flock. They'll no longer be plundered. I'll judge between one sheep and another, and I'll place over them one shepherd, my servant David. So the third thing, having done evangelism, having taught them, the third thing is that I will govern them. 
I will govern them. That is, I'll judge between the fat and the, uh, the lean. That is, I will protect the weak from the strong. He talks about the allocation of resources. That is, I'll make sure that everyone, all the sheep can feed. And then he says, and I will see that I will place over them my servant David. I will make sure that the son of David will be their shepherd. So I take it then that the shepherding ministry, the pastoral ministry of God, is evangelism, teaching, and governing the people of God. And of course, a few years later, somebody stood up and said, I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life for the sheep. I know them and they know my voice. His name is Jesus. So shepherding or pastoral ministry is surely modelled upon that understanding of God's pastoral ministry. Evangelism, teaching, governing the people of God as Jesus has done it. Right, moving on quickly then. Verse 28, what does that mean then if that's what we're doing? Well, we protect the precious sheep. Verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. In other words, keep watch, protect them. Protect these vulnerable people who are so precious to God because Jesus bought them with his own blood. In fact, boldly, verse 28, the church of God, which he bought, impliedly God bought them. I think it's the only place in the Bible where it says this. That in Christ, God paid for his sheep. And we need to remember the people in our congregations, they're not items of furniture to be moved around in church planting. You know, they're not resources to be employed in our grand global strategy for domination. They are the sheep of God. They have been bought with his blood. And even if you don't, the Lord Jesus Christ cares about them passionately. And when you face him on judgment day, you will not have, want to have done any damage to those sheep. And uh, one of the few good things about the Church of England is that in the ordination service, there's that frightening charge to the clergy saying, be assured of the judgment and discipline, I can't remember the words, the discipline and judgment that will come upon you should you cause any harm to the, to, the, to the flock. So when you're church planting, please be aware, this is not an exercise in your, um, you know, your ministry of church planting. Uh, you have been entrusted with some of the precious sheep from the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will account to the good shepherd for how you treat them. They were bought by God. But verse 29, savage wolves will come in or arise to distort the truth. Verse 30. Uh, thir uh, verse 30. So, sorry, verse 29. Savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. I don't know if you've ever seen wolves in action. I went to um, uh, a kind of big compound in Scotland once where they had a wolf pack and the wolf pack was lying at one end of the compound and they, they threw in a carcass at the other end and it was incredible uh, these wolves picked up they all leapt to their feet and they all started loping off you know, that, you know how wolves do that long, really long gait some went high, some went low complete silence they just travelled across the compound and fell upon the carcass and devoured it it was terrifying Paul says, that's what false teachers do to churches. Okay? It's not just an interesting other opinion. It's not good to have a different view. All right? These are wolves who will tear precious, weak Christians apart if you're not careful. And if you're too young to have seen it happen or have heard of it happening, well, talk to people who've seen it or have been part of it. It can be horrendous. The divisions and damage that can be done to people in their personal lives. Homes and families torn apart by disagreement because somebody's come into the church and is leading the people off. So what I do when people arrive and they tell me how they, God has given them some wonderful ministry, I say, look, it's so good to have you, and I put them in Robin Cooper's Bible study group. Robin Cooper is my senior elder, and basically his job is to work out whether they're kosher or not. And usually by the end of the year, they've gone on. You know, you know how that happens? Have you had anybody arrive yet saying, I think God has given me a, a gift for, for church planting and particularly for really empowering people to do wonderful things, and I've, I've really heard good things about your church, and I'd really like to be on your team, and really, I want to back you and be part of it. And uh, so, you know, obviously get to know you for, you know, a few days, and then, and then just let me at the people. 
Oh, so good to have you. Uh, this is Robin Cooper's group, and I'd uh, love you to, and I'm not doing anything with them for a year. Don't be naive. Don't be naive. And of course, he says, uh, in fact, some of you could be the people who do it. So verse 30, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. Why on earth would you do that? Why on earth would you be somebody who twists the truth? Of course, twist, it's not somebody who, who denies the truth. It's not somebody who says it's all rubbish. It's somebody who twists it, gives, you know, is, is dissatisfied with, with orthodox Bible teaching, just wants to kind of give it a tweak, give it a bit of a twist. Why would you do that? Well, it says it here. In order to draw away disciples after them. Beware of the instinct to want a following. I want a following. I want to find some great new truth that will set me apart. I want a platform. I want to write a book. I want to be a lead. I want, I want to have people follow me. That's a very dangerous instinct. So what do you do, verse 31? So be on your guard. Remember that for three years they never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Uh, I mean, if, I have to say... I mean, I think I do my fair share of trying to be faithful in warning people about false teaching as we teach through the Bible, but night and day for three years? Night and day? Warning? Um, I mean, the Apostle Paul clearly did a lot of warning. It's worth asking, when was the last time you warned anybody about false teaching? Because, of course, you have to say the negatives if people are going to understand the positives. The negatives locate the positives. If you don't get that, then think about it. You know, it's like the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everybody loves that. Implication, therefore, no one comes to the Father except by me. Well, nobody likes that. But you see, the second part helps you understand the first part. I am the way, the true and living way. There isn't any other one, but there is one, which is brilliant, but I am, the, I am it. So if you can't warn people of error, then don't be a church leader. If temperamentally, you just can't bring yourself to do it. You just find it too hard. You're a lovely, gentle person, and you cannot bring yourself to warn people in an appropriately generous but, but honest and truthful way about false teaching. Please don't be a church leader. You are a shepherd who cannot fight wolves. However, if you are somebody that can warn people about false teaching, don't enjoy it. Don't enjoy it. Do you see it says here? With tears. That is, don't be somebody who, who is the hunter. I don't know if you've seen the film The Hunter yet. You know, you know, false teaching, you're basically just looking for somebody to shoot. Bang! Got him. Fantastic. You know, bang! I love it. The whole of church life is all about shooting false teachers. You know, if you're somebody who loves it, please don't be a church leader. Don't spend your entire ministry... I don't want to spend my criticizing other people. Don't become a bitter and negative heresy hunter. If you're going to warn about false teaching, it should grieve you and bring tears. And if you have been somebody who has warned about false teaching in the past, don't stop. That is, as I get older, I'm becoming softer. If you think I'm hard now, you should have seen me 10 years ago. In other words, there is an instinct as you get older and you meet more. You do soften. You know, the problem with young men, uh, and perhaps young women, no, mainly young men, I think, is you're too hard. You know, ka-ching. And you get older and it's nice. Oh, you know, you just give him some time. You know. And I want to say for those of us who are getting older, well, that would be everybody there, wouldn't it? Don't go soft. Don't let yourself go, go soft. Don't stop warning. It's a job all your life to do it. So protect the church, and in Jesus' words, give your life. Lay down your life to do it. Thirdly, and very quickly, and lastly, I think Scott's hovering in the, in the background there. Verses 32 to 35, give the word. Give the word. Verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who, who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Well, I think money is behind this. I think uh, the cosmopolitan wealthy people of Ephesus uh, had an issue with money. Well, who doesn't? But I think he saw the problem. You read about it in 1 Timothy. And he says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance. Don't worry about your inheritance. The word of God will give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. It's very striking, isn't it? Um, who do you think is going to run your church plant? It's interesting. The Apostle Paul says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Your job is to give people to God and the word of his grace. In fact, that's when you can leave. That's when you've done your job. If people know how to read the Bible and they understand the, the gospel of grace, that's your task, to give people to God and the gospel, the word of his grace, because it can build them up and give them inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. And then he says, I've not coveted. And this actually, there are echoes here of the speech of Samuel, back in 1 Samuel, I think it's uh, 1 Samuel 13, I think, where Samuel stands up in front of the people and says, let's just establish here, I've never taken anything from you, have I? And the people say, no. I haven't coveted your God, I haven't taken you, I haven't taken courses. No, he's talking about kings and that, you know, because the kings will take. And so Paul is saying here, I've not coveted, I've not tried to take things from you. Now listen, when you're church planting, one of the things about church planting and being a church leader is that you're a hunter-gatherer. Um, you know, that there's a sense in which you're desperate for more people, you're desperate for more resources. And so what happens is in comes the single mum with a couple of kids, and it's very nice to see you, and then in comes the, um, uh, the banker. Oh, it's very nice to meet you. And you know, once, once you know anything about money, what's going on is ka-ching, ka-ching, he's the banker. How very nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah, please, let me introduce you to our women's worker over here. Hi, it's so good to meet you, Mr. Banker. It's really good to have you here. Perhaps you'd like to come around for a meal. Uh, could, why don't you take this single mum for a meal, please? Uh, that would be really, really helpful. Uh, let's get back to now. You were talking about the skiing chalet. Uh, I love skiing myself. I, I, you, got, you like skiing? I'd love to go skiing with you. How, 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 lovely, how lovely. Now, of course money is a ministry and money is a gift. So is being a single mum. So you, you need both gifts. I'm not saying don't be sensible about the people with money. They have a ministry of supporting church planting. But... We've got to try and purify our motives and our hearts here, haven't we? That is, don't covet, covet people's possessions and goods. Beware in ministry of wanting the things that people have got. Beware of using the people in your congregation for your planting purposes. Love them. Yes, they have a ministry, but get it clear in your heart that our primary purpose is to love people and to introduce them to Jesus. And so he ends. He said, I've not coveted. He says, if you remember, I taught that it's more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, his ministry was basically giving, not getting. Be a giver, not a getter. And church planting, it's not that I'm trying to get enough to form a church. I'm wanting to give myself and the gospel to these people that God loves. And so he ends. Teach the gospel, protect the church, give the word. And look at the response in verse 36 to 38. He's just described a Bible teaching ministry. Teaching the gospel, protecting the church, giving the word. And we all know, don't we, that Bible teaching ministry is intellectual, cerebral, and impersonal. And if you engage in such a ministry, you're not properly loving people and they won't love you. And you look at verse 36. When he'd said this, he knelt down with them, all of them, and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. People who say that Bible teaching ministry is impersonal have never done it. They don't know what they're talking about. If you teach the Bible to people, because the Bible addresses all the most personal aspects of people's lives, if you teach the Bible, you will be given access to every, every area of people's lives. When you're teaching the word of God, you are explaining how they're to who they're to trust for salvation, who they're to marry. They're teaching about their sex lives. You're talking about how they use their money, where they go on holiday, all the most personal things. And if you are faithful to the word of God, people will actually let you tell them how to conduct the most private and intimate parts of their lives, so long as you are faithful with the word of God. And the joy that that brings of seeing people. I remember when I left um, St. Mary's in, in Cheadle, 
and the people were coming up to the, to the, to the table to share the Lord's Supper. And there was a woman, I'd buried her husband. There was a, a person who became a Christian as I went through the gospel with them. There was somebody, I remember talking about their addictions, um, you know, and just one by one by one, the people whose lives I'd been given the privilege of being involved with because I taught them the word of God. And there is nothing more personally rewarding. There's nothing more emotionally involving than the ministry of the word of God. Well, that's how the apostle planted churches I suggest you and I do the same. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the example of the apostle and the teachings of your word that summarize his ministry, teaching the gospel, protecting the church, and giving the word. And we pray, Lord God, that you'd help us as far as we can to model our ministry upon that of the apostle, whom was one of your apostles, Lord Jesus. You taught him. Uh, We know that he was incredibly effective, and uh, he's just explained for us how he did it. And so we pray, uh, Lord God, that not not just because it works, but because it's the word of God, that uh, this is the way gospel ministry should be done. We pray you'd help to make it true of our own ministries. We ask it for Christ's glory. Amen.